Our gospel reading this morning is perhaps one of the most unsettling scriptures in all of the New Testament. How do you explain these people who did great things in Jesus' name, and yet when they come before him in heaven, somehow they find themselves face to face with a stranger? It's a thought-provoking question for us. And my goal this morning as we go through this text together, perhaps is to comfort the afflicted and also to afflict those who are comfortable. My prayer is no matter where we stand this morning is that we would each receive what we need to receive from this text for our individual betterment. So how do we answer this question? How do these people who supposedly did great things in Christ's name say Jesus never knew them? How is this possible? Well, verse 21 gives us a clue. So I'm going to read it again with a slightly different emphasis. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, it doesn't make much difference what you say. It makes all the difference what you are, what is true. I mean, I could say I have a can of Coca-Cola in my left hand right now. We used this example a few weeks ago, and you know, that's, I could say it all that I want. It doesn't make it true. The facts simply just don't correspond to reality. And similarly, many people identify as Christians, but are not, because they do not do the will of the Father, and that's the giveaway. So wait, John, you've, you've been teaching for weeks now that it's all about grace. What's with this sudden emphasis on works? You know, don't I just have to believe in Jesus? And yes, that's true. But it's not either or. It's both. It's both and, if you will. You see, there are two sides of the same coin. You can't believe the gospel that, that Jesus Christ has died for you, took in all of your sins upon the cross, and it have no effect on you. Have the Holy Spirit inside of you that the, that the, the New Testament says, though, that the Holy Spirit, the mint that we believed, the Holy Spirit is inside of us. And that have no effect on us at all. I mean, think about it. You, you can't drink a strong cup of coffee and it not have an effect on you. How much more so the God of the universe inside of you? And for that to have no effect on your life? I mean, if you drank a really strong cup of coffee at my house and you were acting exactly the same, I'd be wondering if you poured it out somewhere. In the same way, maybe we haven't actually partaken in the Holy Spirit if it has had no effect on our lives. And that's really what our first reading that Larry read from James chapter 2 is really about. It's not about faith or works. It's about having a kind of faith that has works as well. It's, um, it's, 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 It's about having the right kind of faith, a living and active faith that includes repenting of our sins, that includes seeking to be sanctified, that Fancy word that just means becoming more like Jesus over time. Because you see, anyone can say they believe in God. 
But as we said in James chapter 2, you know, that's something even the demons can say. They at least tremble at that thought, tremble at that, at that fact. So it's not just the one who says, but the one who has an authentic faith that leads them into doing, that has an effect on their lives. Does that make sense? Okay. Where it gets slightly confusing is the next verse. Verse 22, where it says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Before we get into the main thrust of that, it's, it, it's wise to notice what Jesus is subtly indicating here. He says, they will say to me on that day. Who's conducting the, the entrance exam into heaven? It's not St. Peter. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And here he is acting as judge, standing at the door. And I know this is, can be an uncomfortable thought for us. We don't often think about this, but Jesus, meek and mild, is also our judge, is also Lord, Lord, creator, sustainer, king of the universe, king of kings and lord of lords, who has authority on that day to speak to us what our eternal destiny will be. And the Bible assures us if we know him, we are welcomed home as a family member is welcomed home. Prodigal though we may be, God still welcomes us home as a family member. But if we don't know him and we show up at his gates as a stranger that day, he will meet us as judge. And this, this scripture tells us we, can't, we don't have much hope on that day if we meet him they and then that day as our judge. But moving on, this seems to contradict my earlier points, doesn't it? I mean, these guys claim, I actually have done works, great works. You know, they claim they do have evidence for their salvation. I mean, I've never cast out a demon before. Have any of you guys? That would look pretty cool. To see that happen, that would be pretty impressive. So make no mistake, whatever these guys have done, it's... It, it would look pretty impressive what their works were. So how do we explain this disconnect? Well, I can think of two reasonable explanations for this and some additional thoughts to kind of fill in the blanks. But the first is that they didn't actually do those things. They just thought that they did. Or perhaps even just said that they did. You, you guys never said anything before to try to get yourself into a place, right? You never lied about a return at the grocery store, have you? No? <laughs> the second one, and perhaps is more likely, is, God, is that God used them in spite of themselves, despite whatever they did or did not actually believe. Similar to my friend that I referenced a number of weeks ago who came to encounter the living God because of a false prophet. 
you know, got, he got introduced to Christianity through somebody who was presenting a radically different gospel, but it was just enough to get him interested in the things of God again, and God was able to use that. Who's to say that these guys aren't in a similar position? And, we, and frankly, we see this all the time throughout Scripture. I mean, God spoke through a donkey before to the prophet Balaam. King Saul prophesied even after his falling out with God. God even spoke prophetically through Caiaphas, the, uh, the high priest who said of Jesus, should not one man die for the sake of the nation? He meant it in a radically different context. He thought we'd all be better off if we can just kill Jesus, not realizing he was prophesying of a radically biblical truth. So whatever happened in these extreme examples, I think we could better understand if we view it through the lens of the Pharisees. Because this might be shocking for some of you guys to know. I want to challenge some of our assumptions this morning. Had Jesus not given us the clarity of who the Pharisees were, history would have remembered them as the good guys. Let that sink in for a second. To become a Pharisee, you had to have some impressive credentials. I mean, you had to memorize the first five books of the Bible and be able to recite them. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's impressive. I can't do that. I'm not anywhere close to that. So that would have looked quite impressive. And furthermore, they took the word of God extremely literally. I mean, they, not only did they memorize scripture, but they, they implemented it in the most literal sense possible, measuring down their offerings to the smallest possible ounce supposedly out of reverence for God's word. It's only because of Jesus that we know. It's only because of their hypocrisy. It's only because they want to show off to each other how holy they were and how much holier than the rest of us that they were. We only know that because of what Jesus has told us. History books might have remembered someone we would have looked up to. How's that for a scary thought? So it looked like their faith was strong through their works. But yet, what did Jesus say to them? He said, you err because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. Oh, the irony. Memorizing vast swaths of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures. You might be able to quote me chapter and verse, but you don't know them. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know God. And all these things they did supposedly for God, and yet they didn't know God at all. That's a sobering thought. And you know, it, sh it should concern us that on that same day where we meet Jesus, it's possible God will say to us, you know, all these things that we supposedly did in Christ's name weren't actually done in Christ's name. Lord, Lord, did I not serve in the food pantry in your name? Did I not serve on the deacon board in your name? Did I not serve in the Sunday school? Was I not a good Presbyterian in your name? And I fear that on that day, Jesus might say to some people, you didn't know me. You didn't love me. At best, you just loved my church. Now, that's a sobering thought, but bear with me. You know, people will have many positive experiences here at church. You will love our culture. You will love our community. You might get something academically 
um, stimulating from, from what we do here. But this very community, this very building that we worship in can become an idol. And the thing that we look to and, the, the, and we end up worshiping the object that is meant to point us to God instead of worshiping the God that is meant to point us towards. It, it's happened all throughout Scripture. I'm not, I'm not proclaiming some new doctrine to you guys. In Numbers 21, the Israelites, when they were being attacked by a, basically a herd of poisonous snakes, um, the people were dying off left and right. And some of you know this story. God told Moses to build, of all things, a bronze serpent. Put it on a pole and hold it up for the whole nation to see. And that everyone who would look to that snake would be saved, would be healed from their affliction from those snakes. Very fascinating story. And by the way, what a beautiful picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. That the people were perishing but those who look to the one whom God lifted up on the pole would be saved. What a beautiful prophetic foreshadowing of our Savior. But alas, that happened in Numbers chapter 21. But by 2 Kings chapter 18, that very same bronze serpent had become an idol. People were praying to that, serp, that bronze serpent. They were burning incense to it. They were making offerings to it. It had become an idol. They started worshiping something that God had used for good things. But it had become an object of worship to itself. And therefore an idol. And at that time, in that chapter, you can read about it yourself in 2 Kings 18, where King Josiah had no choice. He smashed that thing into a million pieces. Because it was better to smash something that God had previously used that had been polluted than to allow it to become an object of worship unto itself. And let me tell you guys, it would be better that this building burned down than it become an idol for some of you. As sobering as that thought is. Don't become like the Pharisees that take the culture or the experience or the object and elevate it above the God whom that object was meant to point us towards. I hope you hear my heart in that because it comes from just genuine love and concern for you guys. And by the way, that, this, is, this highlights the problem of religions, by the way, does it not? Religions say, oh, I said these things. I did these things. You should accept me because I said and did the things. I mean, you have your holy days of obligation, your sacrifices, your sacraments, your statues that you pray to. But that's religion. That's not a relationship. A relationship says, I know you. Not I know about you. It says, but I know you. I know how you think. I know how you act. I know what makes you happy. I know it breaks your heart. That's knowing somebody. And that's what we ought to do for our Savior. That's how we should view our God, through a view of knowing Him, not just knowing about Him. Because I'll be honest, guys, there are tons of theologians in this world that know a lot more than I do. I'm no scholar. I don't claim to be a scholar. I'm just a guy who reads his Bible and... Tells you guys what, uh, what the Word of God says. 
But I know my Savior. That I will boast in. I know God. And that is worth more to me than thousands of years worth of studying to actually encounter the living God. And please don't hear me wrong. There's nothing wrong with being educated. There's nothing wrong with memorizing or knowing the scriptures. I so desire that in my own life. But if the Pharisees teach us anything, it's that knowing these truths is not enough. We have to know the one whom these truths point us to. Because without knowing him, all we have are our works. And did you guys see what Jesus said in verse 23 about our works? These guys who had done many great things, cast out demons, prophesied in his name, what does he say? He calls them workers of lawlessness. These people who do these great deeds. We're not the good people we think we are, biblically speaking. You know, Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And if you know the Hebrew, you know that that's a very kind translation. It's actually a lot more grotesque than that, how he describes all of our righteous deeds. But guys, you, you, many of you guys were with us as we've been traveling through the Sermon on the Mount together. You know, it, it was only, what, two chapters ago when Jesus is saying that to be angry with someone is the same as murdering someone. To have lust in your heart is the same as, ha- as experiencing adultery with somebody. That's how high the bar is. That's how far short we fall of it. So indeed, our our deeds aren't as great as we think that they are. Even if they look impressive to others, we're not impressing anybody. So it's not about saying. It's not about doing. The only basis we have for our salvation is knowing. Knowing. Knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. Knowing the God of the Bible. And these people Jesus is referencing in these short three verses, they never knew him. They never had salvation. You know, Jesus is saying, I never knew you. Not I used to know you. And you walked away. I never knew you. That's a lesson for us. This isn't describing somebody who did great things or had a vibrant faith and then sinned their way out. That's not something you can do. The Bible assures us that we're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You're not, there is no reverting to what you once were. These guys never experienced Jesus in the full sense. So the question keeps returning to this one point, and I will emphasize it again. Do you know him this morning? Have you recognized that you are a sinner and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to earth to die for your sins on the cross so that all of us who believe in him and believe what he did for us can be forgiven? Have we chosen to repent and change our minds about our sins and follow Jesus as Lord? Because that is the narrow gate that we talked about a few weeks ago. And if we don't know him, We can't expect entry into heaven based off of what Jesus said here. You know, it's interesting. A number of years ago, my seminary professor was going door to door, doing some evangelizing, talking to some people in his area. And one person was giving him a bit of a hard time, insisting he was a good person and he's good enough to go into heaven. And 
he said, my, my professor said to him, well, if I were to demand right now to enter into your home, despite never knowing you before, what would you say to me? And the man said, well, I'd tell you to go to hell. And my professor just stared at him and said, sir, don't you realize that's exactly what God is going to say to you when you show up at his door having never met him before? Can I have a few minutes to introduce you to him? That's what this is about. So with that thought in mind, I want to close with one last illustration. Engraved in a cathedral in Germany are the following words. Let's take heed to this this morning. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me the way and walk me not. You call me the life and choose me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me noble, yet serve me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me mighty and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. So my friends, don't trust in your words. Don't trust in your works. Don't trust in your baptism. Don't trust in your confirmation. Don't trust in your membership. And God forbid you trust in the denomination. Know and trust the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross for you this morning. There's nothing more important than that. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.